Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to transform the world within you and transform the world around you. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, hi, everybody. Hey, and welcome to Cultural Catalyst, where we teach you how to live fully live, co-labor with God, and change the world. I'm your host, Chris Valentin, and today I have a very interesting guest. I have Rich Smith with me. Rich is, he actually oversees all of our theology in our school with Dan Fairley. He is an amazing theologian, and I thought we were going to have this great conversation about end times, because we have people asking all the time, like, what do you believe about the end times, and what, where's Bethel's response to the end times? And we're, we're not going to talk necessarily about Bethel's response to the end times, but we are going to talk about Rich Smith's idea of end times, and Chris Felton is going to comment on it. So, Rich, before we do that, tell us a little bit about your life. You're married uh, to Danielle, been married like 32 years or something. Yep, yep, yep. Got a couple kids. Two children, Nate and Hannah, yep. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is amazing. It's just awesome honor and privilege for me to be here. I'm just thrilled. Um, yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, became a Christian, you know, a wee little guy, five or six years old, oh. had a... Wait, uh, should be right there. Oh, yes, it's good. Uh, had a come to Jesus moment as a teenager and, you know, went forward in tears and all the stuff at the altar. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I did college. I got to, I went to Penn state. I got to play on the Penn state soccer team when I was a young kid. Wow. And, uh, after that I did seminary. You have a degree. I have multiple degrees. How many degrees do you two have? Two degrees. I have a bachelor's and I have a master's of divinity from seminary. Wow. And so, um, yeah, and I thought about doing the doctorate and then I bailed out. So, um, you're yep. not, you, we can't call you Dr. Cannot Rich. Cannot call me Dr. Rich. You cannot do that. Man. So, sorry. Sorry. Take that off the table. So, um, yeah, and then I pastored two different churches in New Jersey. I was a youth pastor, assistant pastor in the first church, very conservative, evangelical church, but good people. They love Jesus. And then my wife and I went and planted a church. And we were planning a church trying to do supernatural things, even though we had no idea how to do it. How'd that work out for you? Uh, it was a challenge. <laughs> and I say all the time to the students, I say, when you're doing something by trial and error, there are lots of errors. And so, <laughs> so after a period of, yeah, 16 years in the two different churches. Uh, you God, pastored for 16 years. 16 years. And, and you would say pastor is not for everybody. I, I would say it's absolutely not for everybody. <laughs> and, and there's different types, and we know all this. Yeah. And so, yeah, and then God, crazy, we don't have time for the story, but a radical, crazy uh, calling to show up at Bethel. And so we came out here, didn't know all kinds of things, didn't know anybody, and uh, thought everything was going to work out, you know, swimmingly, you know, because I was following the leading of the Lord, and I ended up in the Bethel Maintenance Department for years. Did you guys go to school ministry? I, I did remember. all three years of school I ministry. So. I, I third yeared under Dan Fairley. And Danielle, your wife? Yeah, she did She did first year. She's she's better than me. She only needed one year. I, need, <laughs> I needed all three. <laughs> Got those, de- drove those demons out in one yeah, year. she was good. She was good. That's so awesome. she did one. I did all three. And yeah, then I worked for Dave Runny in the maintenance shop for eight years before, maintenance. before things opened up for me. In, in, uh, that was kind of your seven. wilderness, huh? It, it was my wilderness season. We could call it that. But I say to people all the time, if my wilderness season was hanging out at Bethel, not the worst wilderness not in the world. Not the worst wilderness in the world. Yeah. Wow. Not the worst. Okay. So, so Rich, we actually yes. want to talk about the end times. Oh, boy. I can and, talk about and it. I feel like this is a really important subject. And the reason I do, and you, you know this, we've talked before, but you know, I feel like what you believe about the end 
has everything to do with how you behave in the middle. Sure does. So from my perspective, for the things I'm passionate about, which isn't necessarily talking about in times, to be honest, my passion, as you know, is transforming culture, right. seeing Earth, seeing Earth be you know transformed by heaven, right, and seeing cities and and nations transform. Mm-hmm. But one of the greatest, I think, uh, resistors to that. Mm-hmm is the eschatology, which means eschatology, the study of end times. The eschatology that I grew up in in the Jesus movement was like, we're getting out of here any minute. Right. You know, this <laughs> bumper sticker about this car, you can keep this car during the rapture, all this kind of <laughs> crazy stuff. I actually didn't go to college because really? I was taught there was going to be no tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Why, so why go? Why spend money and get an education? I read the book. Uh, I was required to read the book, Late, Late Great Eighth Planet grade. Earth. Yep. And listen to all the tape series, mm-hmm. set tapes in those days. Yep. And so I was taught there isn't, you know, there's there's no use repair, for preparing mm-hmm. for tomorrow because there yeah. wasn't going to be a tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. So I know, like, for those people who are watching, eschatology is important because it actually does affect the way you actually live every day. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the doom and gloom side of it first. Like there's a doom and gloom. Yeah. So, so many Christians, they look at our world and they say it's getting worse and worse. And and it's not hard to watch the news and see that. Like, come on. So much news. Um, We we have a fear of technology because we think that's the mark of the beast. You remember when the barcodes came out? Oh, yeah. That was 666. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put it on my head or my hand. Coming any day. We can't do anything without barcodes. Yeah. And we have a fear of politics because we're afraid of this one world government that's going to unite against. And so, whenever uh, nations start talking about peace treaties, Christians, get they kind of stay away from that they're a little you know i don't want to get too close that could be the devil doing these things one world government um we have a fear just like you were saying of long-term thinking yeah because if jesus could come back at any moment and he's going to blow up this planet and make a brand new one then why should i think for the future totally and so it takes us out of that place interesting observation um, you know, in a lot of European cities, uh, South America, Central American cities, where Catholicism has been prevalent, yeah. in almost every city, in the main uh, center square, what do we have? A huge cathedral. Yes. And most of those cathedrals took 100, 200, 300 years to build. Even longer, some so of them. So here's the question. Do you build something that takes 300 years if you think Jesus is coming back at any moment? I don't think so. You don't. You don't. Now you look at most, uh, let's just say, Western, American, <laughs> Protestant-type churches. Get her done. <laughs> cheap, simple, a little box, because we have this mindset that's literally affected the way we build and the way the things, how we look at the future. So we, we see it. We see it all over the place. It's just Isn't a, it crazy that even the buildings we build are a manifestation of the future we plan for? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we take away that long-term thinking— then we just can't, we can't get beyond. We can't think about our children's children. Uh, we're just in the here and now, and, and that's where we're stuck. So uh, am I answering your question you about are, doom and gloom? That's so good. Okay, good. And, and so before we go on too far, because it's already in my mind, Jesus could come back tomorrow. He could. Very well could, right? He could. So we have to plan. We have to be ready as if he's going to come back tomorrow. Do you, would you agree with that? I absolutely. I absolutely believe in the second coming. Um, I, I sadly, when, when I explain my whole view, yeah. most of the students, they want me to unfold the map with the charts and show go. them all the things. Where, the, where are the horses? Where are the dragons? Where are all the things? <laughs> the dragons and, and the and horses. When I read my Bible, the trumpets. 
I don't see that. I just say Jesus saying this will happen and this will. I'm coming back. There'll be a judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be a resurrection. Mm-hmm. I just don't see all the signs, the steps leading up to it that the Bible lays out that people have told us is out there. Yeah. So I believe those things are happening. I believe they're still in our future. Yes, they could happen. But I also think I also think God's waiting on the church to do some things. And I think that's part of what our job is. Ooh. Okay. Let's talk about that. Okay. So let's talk about the fantastic future. Okay. Let's talk about a victorious eschatology. Yep. And then let's end with how that actually affects our daily lives. Because what you and I care about most is that we walk out the kingdom every day. Absolutely. In a way that people are fully alive. Absolutely. Fully engaged with the Lord. Yep. He's at the center. And that we are fill, filled with joy and hope. Yep. And we live in faith. Yep. So let's talk about eschatology that has a fantastic future. And let's talk about some of the theology around it. Yeah. So, so if, if my eschatology is doom and gloom, yeah. then one of the main fruits and byproducts is fear. Yes. Uh, it causes the church and Christians to kind of huddle together. And so we huddle in our little groups around the common ideas that we have. Yeah. And we're convinced that we're the remnant. We're the only ones who are going to make it till the end. Exactly. And no, nobody else gets included. Locked and loaded. And, and, and as I share this, especially with our students, as we start to open the, these ideas up and we give them a, a theology that has hope, a theology that has vision, suddenly that fear breaks off of them. Yeah. Because, I okay, some simple parables. Jesus said the kingdom is like a mustard seed, this very small seed, and it grows to become the biggest tree in the garden. It doesn't say the only tree in the garden, doesn't say there aren't other bushes or flowers, but it says it becomes the biggest tree in the garden. Yeah, That's the kingdom. And so it's supposed to be on the planet, impacting the planet. Uh, Jesus said uh, the kingdom is like this little bit of yeast or leaven. Yes. Put it in the lump of dough. What's it going to do? It's going to influence the entire lump of dough. That's how the kingdom is supposed to be working. And um, I, I just, as I, as I share this with our students and they start to catch the, the, the vision for this, they realize, oh my goodness, I've been sitting back. I've been doing nothing. I've been waiting for Jesus and the second coming to come fix everything. When actually, I think Jesus is waiting on the church to do her, her job. Come on. So, so here's a verse. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. I don't know if you know this, it is the most frequently quoted and referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament verse. And it says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What does that say? That says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, the same things Paul says in Ephesians, but it says he's waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. What are the enemies? They're certainly not people. The enemies are the systems and the institutions, the, the, the poverty and the racism, trafficking, all these horrible, terrible things that are going on in our, in our yep, world. There you go. And, and God is waiting on us as the church to bring solutions to those problems. Oh, you're, you're uh, referencing that he's the head and we're the body. Uh, absolutely. So the footstool would be, you're saying he's put everything under the church's feet. That's Everything's you... under our feet. But what, I, what I'm saying is that I think... I think God is in heaven, the whole, empower, asking the Holy Spirit, empowering the Holy Spirit to motivate his people to bring change on the planet. And so if we sit back, huddled in our little things, fearful, you know, our, our little crew of 25 or 30 people that believe the same thing, uh, we're not bringing a difference in the world. Oh, that's However, so cool. if we start asking the Lord for downloads, we, we take homelessness, right? There's a big problem. What if we went to the Lord and said, we as the church want to make a difference? 
we, God, we are pressing into you. How can we solve the problem in our city? We ask the Lord for solutions. You know God has solutions. Absolutely. Nothing bothers him. He's not sitting up in heaven worried or anxious. Yeah. He's got answers for all this. He's waiting on his people to come and ask him, and then he's going to release answers and solutions. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a couple of hard questions. Okay. Matthew 24. Love it. Okay, so Matthew 24 is probably, besides Revelation, yep. is probably the most quoted end-time passage. Absolutely. Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed. Yes. About, you know, one, in fact, why don't you just share a little bit about Matthew 24? Yeah. So uh, it's called the Olivet Discourse because uh, Jesus was with the disciples. They were at the temple. Yeah. And they, they were so proud. And they're like, Jesus, look at our temple. We it built this for awesome. you. Isn't yes. it amazing? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's all going to come crashing down. And so it's kind of like take the most important building in your, your city or, yeah. you know, your, your state. And, and say, wow, look what we did. And Jesus is like, yeah, I could care less. Yeah, not, not in a good mood. Not. And so then they cross the Kidron Valley. They go up to the Mount of Olives. And literally you can see right back to the temple, almost like you can see the Dome of the Rock right now in Jerusalem. And so they start asking him questions. So in Matthew, they ask him three questions. Uh, what, when will this happen? What will be the signs? And then he throws in this thing, the end of the age. Yes. That's where everybody starts thinking, ah, he's talking about the end times. He's talking about the end times. Now what's interesting is Mark and Luke have the exact same passages. Mark 13, Luke 21. When we go to both Mark and Luke, neither one of them mentions anything about the end times. All the disciples ask Jesus is, when will this happen? Meaning the destruction of the temple. Yeah. And what are the signs that the destruction of the temple is about to happen? Nothing about the end times. Got it. And so you have to ask the question, so two-thirds of the Gospels aren't talking about the end times, so now we have to ask the question, what is Matthew thinking when he writes end of the age? And so I think what happens is we have superimposed our perspective, our thinking about our future. We always do that, right? We put yeah. ourselves in the context of everything. Yeah, it's hard to see. It and, and we don't realize that Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience that understood the idioms and phrases of first century Judaism. Yes. And so he was addressing something that they probably understood, we have misunderstood. And the reason I say that is because when we go all the way through Matthew 24, we get to verse 34. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will happen within this generation. Yeah, this generation will not pass away. Is the, all, is how it says another the translation. Gene, I mean, yep. New American Standard. Yep. Uh, Mark says all these things will happen within this generation. Luke says all these things will happen within this generation. I've done the research in Matthew. This phrase, this generation, shows up exactly nine times in the back book of Matthew, and every single time Jesus, or whoever says it, is talking to the people that are alive. Wow. That's who we're talking about. And so Jesus actually, like, I say it this way. Jesus made two of the most profound prophecies that would validate or invalidate his identity. Number one, rise from the dead. Kind of a biggie. Yes. Okay? If he didn't do that, he's not God. Yeah. Okay? But number two is what we're talking about. Because there were people listening to him that could verify, if that does not happen, you're not who you said you were. And it did happen. And so we find, uh, you know, when they stoned Stephen, one of the things they accused him of was preaching against the temple. When they arrested uh, Paul, one of the things they accused him of was preaching against the temple. And what's fascinating, I'm getting, sorry, I get rolling, so no, you're just good. cut so, me off if you so need me. Bring this, this together for me because yep. I'm not following 
the preaching of the temple in the last days. Pull that together okay. for me. So what I'm saying is this. We have been told that Matthew 24 is about our future. Yes. What I'm saying was Jesus was making a prophecy of something that would happen, but it happened in the first century. Yeah, like 73. 70 AD. 70 AD. Is when the Romans came and, and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So, so figure this out. We're at the end of Matthew. It's roughly 30 AD, give or take, that Jesus says these things. He says all this will happen within a generation. Biblically, a generation is about 40 years. Yes. 30 plus 40 is 70. All these things happened in 70 AD. In fact, we go to 2 Peter, and 2 Peter says, uh, uh, chapter 3, they say, where is this coming? He promised. Everything's going on. Because there was this delay. And Peter's answer is, don't misunderstand his delay. His delay is mercy because he wants everybody to come to faith. So Jesus is prophesying, I believe with all my heart, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Why did that have to happen? It was because of the disobedience of that generation. Uh, Let's say it this way. Jesus shows up and offers a new covenant. Yes. Who's he offer it first to? The Jews. You've got, this is for you. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Yes. He offers them the new covenant. Many accepted, but many didn't. And so for those who didn't accept it, they were locked into the old covenant and all the both blessings and punishments that came with the old covenant. Yes. And so when we go back to the old covenant in, in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, we can see all the things that we're talking about, the end times, has already been talked about in Deuteronomy 28. This is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. And so um, th- this, this all, what this does, okay, I, sorry, I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm hoping I'm making sense. But what this does is we start to see a lot of these passages that we thought were talking about the wrath of God in our future. Yes. Those wrath passages are actually tied to the old covenant. Got it. So when Matthew says the end of the age, he didn't mean the end of the world, I don't think. No. He meant the end of the old covenant. He meant the end of the Mosaic world. And the ultimate symbol of the old covenant in the Mosaic world was the temple. temple. The place where God lived. The one meeting place of heaven and earth where God lived was at that temple. When it gets wiped out, when the sacrifices get wiped out, when the priesthood gets wiped out, the old covenant is officially and completely dead. Uh, We see this in Hebrews. Uh, The Hebrews writer says um, the old covenant is fading, obsolete, and passing away. So it's written between the death of Jesus and 70 AD, and they're saying we can see it's fading out, but from a, a natural perspective, the old covenant appears they're still priests, there's still sacrifices, there's still Passover and all the celebrations. But once that gets closed down, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, the old covenant is done and over. I'm not saying anybody could, you had to come to Jesus. I'm just saying yeah, from a natural course. perspective, yes. you could see this transition. Is that making a little bit of sense? Yeah, I think it does. And the way that I viewed the destruction of the temple, the physical temple, is that the old covenant, they went to a physical temple. Absolutely. The new covenant, we are the temple. Exactly. So there was no, it, was, it wasn't necessary. It was, I think it was, as you said, it's like a prophetic declaration that going to the temple is no longer necessary because you are the temple. And, and what a profound thing. We'll hear Christian teachers all the time talk about, we need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And we're like, wait a minute, I'm the temple. You're exactly. The temple. We Living stones. are the temple all over this planet. The, the spirit of God is indwelling people. 
why in the world would he revert to a, to a building of stone or concrete or whatever when he has living temples to be inside of and move and it's oh, just profound. He didn't actually. He didn't want it in the first place. Like right, he yeah. said to he said to David, yeah. "I don't live in yeah, temples absolutely. made with man's hands." And Solomon said, "This was in the heart of my father." <laughs> he didn't yeah. say this was in the heart of God. Yeah, God had God have a tabernacle like a tem- temporary. Like this is temporary because where I'm living is temporary. Yep, there's a new covenant coming. Yep. yep, that was always plan A was follow the presence and listen to the voice. You want to talk anything about the Book of Revelation oh. because that is a. Okay. That is an interesting. I just finished reading it. I told you I, I read it this time in the Passion Translation because I've you know I've read it in so many translations, mm-hmm. just to kind of get his view of it. Yeah, uh, Brian uh, Simmons. Simmons' view of it, mm-hmm. and uh, and boy that that that's a that could be a scary book. Oh, it totally can. Mm-hmm. It totally can. Okay, so I've got lots to say. So I'm okay. going to try to squeeze it into a tiny little window. We got so, ten minutes. Okay, so you're, you got lots of time. I, it only What's takes ten hours normally to go yes, through it. Exactly. Let <laughs> um, give people an overview of the book. Yeah, of Revelation. great, great, great. So um, I'd like you to imagine for a second that you had never read the book of Revelation. You'd never read anything from the Bible. You're a beginner, and you come to this book and you're going to start to read it. And so you read the, the beginning uh, couple of verses, and what's it say? It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed, are the one, is, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. That's me. And blessed are those who hear it. That's you. Take to heart what's written in it because the time is near. Three verses, two times he says, something's about to happen. If you had no idea, if nobody had ever taught you anything, I think you would think, I think something's about to happen. You go to the last page of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20, and it says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. There are at least 11 places in this book, three different Greek words, saying something is soon or near, coming quickly, it's about to happen. How do we ignore all of those things? And we, we all play the joke, well, I guess God's version of soon isn't our version of soon, right? How many times have we said that joke? Oh, yeah. But it is in the Bible, and I wonder if maybe he meant what he was saying. Another example, in, in verse chapter 22, verse 10, it says, Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Let me tell you why this is important. The book of Revelation is based on between 400 and 500 references, allusions, hints to the Old Testament. The key to interpreting Revelation is the Old Testament. It's not the news. It's not current events. It's the Old Testament. Once we start to understand some of that Old Testament imagery, symbolism, now we can see what John, who is a Jewish prophet, apostle, we can see how he was thinking. And so when he says, do not seal up, it's fascinating because in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 12, Daniel specifically told, seal up the words of the prophecy because it concerns the distant future. Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 8 was about a three to 400 year prophecy. Seal it up, distant future. John's told, do not seal it up. Something's about to happen. So I read all these things and I'm like, okay. I think we're not understanding what's going on. And then let me just read this one. This is the last you asked. So here we go, right? Um, 
chapter 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may go, go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here's my question. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all the grass is burned up, all the waters turned to blood, the stars have fallen from the sky, fire everywhere, lizards, uh, frogs, demons coming out of the abyss. How did all those evil people survive? Every single one of them is still hanging out doing all of their evil stuff. My brain's saying something doesn't add up here. We're right. talking about something else. Yes. And so as I start to piece this together, I realize, oh, well, let me say it this way. <laughs> Three of the Gospels have the Olivet Discourse, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Does John's Gospel have the Olivet Discourse? No. I would suggest because he wrote a whole book about it. Wow. He wrote a whole book. He didn't need to put it in his because he'd spent 22 chapters covering it already. And I can show you this because when we go to Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 and we look at all the signs, and we've all heard the signs before, so false messiahs and false Christ, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, martyrdom, signs in the heavens, right? We've heard all these things. Guess where it's at? Revelation chapter 6. All of those things are listed right there in the exact same order. All the seals are the exact thing right here. And so if we're right... Of Matthew 24. From... If we're right that Matthew 24, all these things will happen within this generation, well, then Revelation chapter 6 is about then, not our future. Wow. And it just keeps going because this book is just, it's just layer upon layer. What do you think about like Mark of the Beast can't buy or sell without it? Sure. So, um, so in Daniel, we have these four beasts who come up out of the sea. Yep. Okay. And they each represent a different empire and a seven, different kingdom. Yeah. Seventh chapter. All yeah. that stuff. Exactly. And it's pretty obvious, most people agree, that, it, that it's uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So the fourth beast is Rome. When we get to the beast in Revelation, John, fully aware of Daniel, blends all of those together. He even describes them with the exact same terms yes, that Daniel does. uses. And where does John's beast come? He comes from the sea. In biblical imagery, the sea always represents the Gentiles because the sea is a place of chaos, confusion. You never know if it's going to be calm or the seas are going to be rough and difficult. So from a Jewish perspective, the sea is the Gentiles. So this beast, this kingdom, comes from the Gentiles. And so any of John's readers, I think, that had Jewish background, they would have already been thinking Rome would be their first thought when they think about the beast. So when you go then to the mark of the beast, you've already connected it to Rome, and you're starting to think, well, what is this mark? Um, we know from history that in Asia Minor, which is where the seven churches of Revelation were located, yep, Ephesus, exactly. Smyrna, Pergamum, all of them, um, there were times in the first century that you were not allowed, let's say you were a farmer or you were a shepherd and you wanted to bring your goods into the city to where all the people were, to the market to sell, you could not go through the gates of the city until you took a pinch of incense, threw it on the fire and burned it, and marked your forehead, almost like many of the Catholics on Ash Wednesday will put a mark on their forehead, and then you must say, Caesar is Lord. You can't wow. get in the city and sell if you don't do that. Wow. Now, that could be what they're talking about, but it's bigger than that because this is such an incredible literary thing because earlier in the book, God had already marked all the believers, 
all yes. the followers of Jesus. Now, I don't think that was a physical thing. I think that was a spiritual thing. Exactly. So the beast is the counterfeit of everything that Jesus is doing. In fact, okay, now I'm getting into it. In Revelation, we have an evil trinity. So we have the dragon that we know is Satan. Chapter 12 tells us he's you know, yep. tried to get the woman yep. and the baby and all that. We, yep. know. we have the beast from the sea, and we also have the beast from the land. So in Jewish imagery, the land, the promised land, always relates to the Jewish people. So this beast is coming out of the Jewish side of things. Well, who's that? The religious people who rejected Jesus, the religious wow. leadership. So here we have an evil trinity that's mimicking everything God's already done. So God marks and protects his people. Therefore, the beast has to put a mark on his people, whether we can find an actual historical proof or not, but he's mocking everything that Jesus is doing. And then you can get into, I could show you this with, uh, with 666. Um, in, ancient, in ancient languages, it was quite common for the letters of the alphabet to equal a number. And so A would be one, B would be two. Got it, yes. Right? So you would know yeah. you, you would know your name, Chris, and you would know the value of each of those letters. I don't know what it is, but let's say you know, it was 530, okay? Yeah. You would know that. And so if Kathy you know, wrote you a little note, I love you 530, like you'd be like, oh, isn't that cute? Like yeah. it'd just be a little thing. We have graffiti, ancient graffiti saying things like this. So um, when, when John tells us to calculate the number of the beast, we're already thinking, I wonder if he's doing that. And when we calculate that number, the way they would have said the emperor at the time, I think Revelation was written in the 60s, uh, the emperor was Caesar Nero. And when we do his name, the way they would have said it in Palestine in the first century, it adds up to exactly 666. If you take, I'm giving you probably more than you the want mark here. Mark of the beast is, six, is a six, government six. number that Nero, it's what you're just saying. But it's so much bigger. Yes. So it's it's multiple layers. So yes, it's Nero, but we've seen six 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 throughout uh, the Bible. So for example, in 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 Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar he builds a statue that they have to bow down and worship. How tall is it? Sixty cubits by six cubits. Six six. It's repeated. Uh, uh, Goliath. Goliath's a prototype of of the beast and of Satan. David. The son of God comes from the son of David. Uh, how his his spear weighed uh, six hundred shekels. He stood over six cubits tall. It doesn't say six and a half, six and three quarters, because that wasn't the point. And so, in the Bible, six becomes this number of man, because we were, man was created on the sixth day. Yeah. The beasts were created on the sixth day. So six is a, a symbol symbol of of humanity. And so, if I as a six try to make myself a God, God's number is often seven, not always, but often. If a six tries to become a seven, I can't do that. I can never become a God. I'm just another six. And I can make you all bow down and I can make you do worships and sacrifices and all crazy things. But at the end of the day, just another six. So this repeated six on one level are man's vain attempts to become a God because we can never get there. It's also Caesar Nero. And have you ever heard of Roman numerals? Like the I is a one and the V is a five and the X. If you take the first handful of Roman numerals and add them all up, it gets exactly to 666. And so it's, I think it's pretty clear that what John was pointing to, if we understand the then and there context, I think we can piece these mysteries together. 
and I, I could go more. There's so okay. much more. I'm overwhelming you. I can tell. No, you're not. You're getting me excited. And and what it what it's going to do for for my viewers is go. Okay, you have ten hours of teaching just on the Book of Revelation. Yeah, right now it's just a BSSM class. I don't have it recorded yet. And you got ten hours on the last days. I have recorded. It's called Rethinking the End Times. It's all available. It's right now. It's like a five or six hour course that they could access. Five or six hour uh-huh. course. So what it's doing for me is saying. Okay, you're just giving us an overview. As fast as I like, can go. Well, how about this? And how about that? Because I'm doing questions. that in my mind. Like, totally. How about the scripture? Wait a second. How about the, you know, and then, and and this gospel shall be preached to the ends of the earth. You know, that. I, Matthew so, 24, 14. Right. So, so all of these verses are still working lots in Lots of mind. questions. There's got to be lots of people. Absolutely. Okay. How do they get to hear that five-hour teaching? And if they want to hear the 10-hour teaching, they got to come to BSSM. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're doing. It's <laughs> yeah, a little advertisement for BSSM. No problem. All day long. I love it. So Did yeah. You? So you can get my um, you can get my my five hour course on my website richschmidt.org. Uh, just go through there. Um, I have a women in ministry class on there. That's also on Bethel TV. You can access it that way. Um, and then in May, uh, we have the dates. I think it's the maybe the fifteenth and the twentieth. I'm doing a two and a half hour online. Uh, revelation reboot. And so we're going to talk about this for two and a half hours, try to give some of the stuff that I would have in the class. Uh, Both, both days are going to be the same content so that people can choose which day that's going to be live. That's going to be a live. Uh, Yep. You'll sign up through richschmidt.org and then we send you the link and you get onto the live call. Okay. So it's uh, rich, obviously R I C H last name is S C H M I D T. Correct just to make sure it's Schmidt. You got it. Dot org. You so you can get that there. Super excited. Love your stuff. Our students, they just rave about your class. Thank you. That's why I want to have you on here. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on. And we just pray for the Lord to give you hope. Like what we're talking about right now, is not just about dead theology. It's about the live body of Christ having hope for the future hmm. Proverbs says, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Hmm. And uh, it, Jesus may come back tomorrow, but we should, we should be ready as if he's coming back tomorrow, and we should have a, we should have a future vision for our children's children. Rich, thank you so much Absolutely. for being on. Thanks a million. So much fun. Really appreciate so it. So much fun. God bless you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. To stay connected, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at chrisvalentin.com forward slash subscribe. God bless you.